What's up, Stitches? Welcome to So What, a podcast about historical needlework and those who made it. I'm Isabella Rosner, your host, and wow-wee, it has been a while since I released an episode. Sorry for the radio silence, and thanks for still being here. Big life changes like finishing the PhD and starting a new job meant that there wasn't much time to make any episodes, but I am very happy to be back at it. In today's episode, I'm interviewing the truly wonderful Rebecca Scott, one of my bosses and the owner of Whitney Antiques, about a very important collection of 17th and 18th century Quaker schoolgirl needlework. Rebecca, who many know as Becky and who I will call Becky throughout this episode, is one of the world's leading experts of English embroidery, especially schoolgirl samplers and early modern embroidery. It kind of feels like how many times can I say the word embroidery in one sentence, but this is an embroidery podcast, so I feel like it's right. Before I tell you more about this episode and about Becky, I have to tell you about how to find images of what we talk about in this interview, especially because it's been a long time. You can find all of these images and sources on the So What social media pages. That's at So What, S-E-W-W-H-A-T podcast on Instagram, Twitter, which I refuse to call X. It's not happening. I'm calling it Twitter and Facebook. We also have a website, which is SoWhatPodcast.com. Okay, so why are we here today? Well, Every year, Whitney Antiques has an annual exhibition of historical needlework, which is free and runs for several weeks. For the past two years, I've been working with Becky on these exhibitions and accompanying exhibition catalogs, which is a huge honor. I am just so thrilled to be involved. It really is a continual pinch me moment. This year's exhibition is called Choice and Precious Works, Treasures from the Schoolroom 1650 to 1750, and it's part one of a two-part exhibition, the second half of which will happen in autumn of 2024. This year's exhibition and catalog of the same name center on a group, what we call a suite, of schoolgirl needlework. It includes all of the embroidery undertaken by a London Quaker girl in the 17th century, and also the needlework of four generations of her descendants, who were also Quaker. The girl who started this group of needlework was named Elizabeth Hall, and she went to a school in Hackney called Shacklewell, which was the first official Quaker girls' school founded by George Fox, who established Quakerism in the late 1640s-slash-early 1650s. This conversation between me and Becky focuses on this Elizabeth Hall family suite. If you want more information about Quakerism, and I am sure you do, who does not? I know I do. I would recommend that you listen to episode 14 of season 2 of So What, called Stitching Among Friends, Early Quaker Needlework. It'll give you a lot of context. I will say briefly here that Quakerism is also called the Religious Society of Friends, and that Quakers promoted plainness in language, dress, and behavior from its very beginning. But the needlework made by this family of London Quakers, and by many London Quakers actually, was very much not plain. These objects are super colorful, they use opulent materials, and they're sometimes just really excessive. I'd really recommend that you look at images of these items because they will truly blow your mind. Two of the items that Becky and I talk about specifically are the garters she finger braided for her mom and a nutmeg she embroidered. I think I've talked about embroidered nutmegs in another So What episode because honestly my entire life right now is embroidered nutmegs and I love it. But to jog your memory, I'm going to hit you with my favorite nutmeg facts to give you some context for how truly wild it is to cover a nutmeg in embroidery in the 17th century. In this period, nutmegs were worth more than their weight in gold. There was a 68,000% markup from their gathering in Indonesia's Banda Islands to their sale in London. They were hugely important for medicinal and culinary purposes, so to render a nutmeg completely useless by covering it in gold embroidery threads and gold sequins is wild. Even wilder is the fact that Elizabeth Hall covered not one, not two, not three, but four, four nutmegs with embroidery. Crazy town. Anyway, Elizabeth Hall's descendants filled her embroidered casket, which she made at school in 1683, with their own needlework, so the objects range from late 17th century to early 19th century. All of the items in the family group are on display in Whitney Antiques' Oxfordshire Gallery until the 18th of November 2023, 
open every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The exhibition is free. We love free and is accompanied by a hardback full-color exhibition catalog that's currently for sale in person and online. The items in the show are very similar to those made by Hannah Downs and her descendants. Hannah Downs was a classmate of Elizabeth Hall, and she was another London Quaker girl, whose suite of needlework is in the collection of the Victoria and Albert Museum. So Rebecca, or Becky Scott, who's obviously my partner in conversation in this episode, became a partner at Whitney Antiques in 1990, taking over the role of owner and director in 2017. Whitney Antiques specializes in British samplers from 1635 to 1880 approximately, and early British embroideries from 1600. Rebecca has authored or co-authored the Whitney Antiques exhibition catalogs since 1993, and in 2009, Shire Publications published her volume called Samplers. Before we get into the interview, I want to give you a bit of context about some of the people we mentioned in our chat. Becky and I talk about Martha Edlin, who was a schoolgirl born in 1660, who's famed for the survival of all of the needlework she made as a schoolgirl. She very likely went to school in Hackney, like Elizabeth Hall and Hannah Downs. Elizabeth Hall herself was born in 1669 and began at Shacklewell in 1681. She was the daughter of Martha Lemon or Limon, a Huguenot, and Peter Hall, a mealman or corn merchant. She was the mother of Peter Collinson, one of the most famous and important botanists of the 18th century. How crazy is that? I just think that's the coolest thing. We also mention Simeon Warner, who was the grandfather of Anna Harrell, whose childhood embroidery was added to the suite in the 18th century. And we also talk about Jacob Bell, who was Elizabeth Hall's grandson. As an FYI, Becky and I recorded the first half of our conversation in person and the second half over the phone, so the audio quality drops quite a lot in the second half. Turns out that recording a phone call on an iPad's voice note app maybe wasn't the best idea. Sorry about that. Okay, let's get into it. Becky, thanks so much for doing this with me. We've been talking about this for literal years. <laughs> you coming on So What? So thank you very much for being here. First question, what is your origin story? How did you come to Whitney Antiques? Well, because my parents owned Whitney Antiques. <laughs> Convenient. And, um, and I knew from a really early age that I always wanted to be involved in the business of antiques mm. in some capacity. Um, and then when I was in my early 20s um, and decided that, yes, that was what I wanted to do, mm. I kind of guess I just found needlework as my niche. Love it. Your um, passion, your joy. Absolutely. Because you really, like one of the best things about working with you has been seeing not only your knowledge, because you have truly seen probably more needlework of this period, of the early modern period from England than anybody else, but also like you just care so much. You've been working in this for a long time, but you still love the girls. You love their needlework. You love this stuff. The needlework is is just the way into their lives, I guess, for me. Mm. Um, yeah, and I'm, I mean, basically, I'm just a very, very nosy person. So I want to know about their lives. I want I to know it. yes where they lived, how they lived, what how they spent their time. Um, what were they up to? What were they up to? Absolutely. What was the hot goss? Well, I'm interested in the hot goss. <laughs> I'm also interested in history, but what's the gossip? But also, you, I picture them, you know. Yeah. I, I talk to my pieces of needlework. Quite literally, I do talk to it. Mm. Um, yeah, I just... It, it, once you become invested in it and and you're interested in it, it becomes all-consuming, or at least it did for me. I, I mean, I totally relate, but I also find your uh, approach to all of this very inspirational because you live and breathe it and you work so hard to make these girls come alive again. Well, they're I, right here waiting for us to tell their stories. Absolutely. And you're doing that. Yeah, no, absolutely. They're, they're, they're completely, they well, they surround me here. When I'm in, you know, when I'm mm. in the shop, they, everywhere I look, I see them. And they're like old friends. They are. And some of them, well, actually, not so old friends. Mm. So sometimes they just, you know, somebody once said to me, and I think it's really true, 
that the needlework speaks its truth very quietly. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. It's true. I feel like it. one of the first things that I loved about historical embroidery is that it was samplers and it felt like a sampler was telling me everything I needed to know about a person, but not in a very obvious way. Like, okay, yeah, it has her name. It'll have the date. Those are obvious things. But there are more subtle things like what is, what's up with that motif? I feel like I've seen this motif elsewhere. Can I therefore locate this girl because of that? It's this, yeah, the deeper layers. Well, it's, it's, you kind of feel a little bit like you're, you're forensically examining the needlework in order to discover more about the girl. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of detective work as well. That's um, right. Yeah. So it fulfills all kinds of, you know, wants and desires in, in, in me and, and, and indeed in all the other historians that um, spend their time looking at needlework. How did you come to find the Elizabeth Hall suite? Did it come to you? What is the origin story of you and that suite? So originally, um, my when we had our original exhibitions, which span 28 years, I think. Thir- no, 30 years. Oh, happy um, anniversary. Um we used to have a lady that lived in Milton under Witchwood who used to come and visit the exhibitions. And over the years, she she had various pieces of needlework, which occasionally she would call it call us in to, to look at. And after she passed away, her daughter contacted me and, um, and I went to do a valuation on some needlework that they had discovered in the family house. Um, and that was the Elizabeth Hall suite. So that was my Love. first contact. Mm. Um, the family weren't quite sure what they wanted to do with it at that stage. And various museum donations were discussed. But eventually they decided that they were going to sell. And fortunately for me, I was the one who was able to buy it. And that's about 10 years ago. That is amazing. Yeah, I mean, you've been sitting with this, living and breathing it for a long time. And now it's finally out in the world. Yeah, I, when I first saw it, I had spent some time discussing a group of Quaker samplers with Carol Humphrey from the Fitzwilliam. Mm. And we both had the same feeling that a lot of the samplers that we saw that we could that were named and dated were when you when you looked into the family um records you found out that these girls were either dissenting backgrounds or more particularly quite often quakers mm. and when i saw the elizabeth hall suite and i saw the casket immediately it struck a chord with me and I knew that I'd seen the Hannah Downs casket mm. in the V&A. Yeah. Um, and when I looked at the contents, it enabled me to put the two together. Mm. And fortunately, the family allowed me in to, to look at a lot of the paperwork in which they they had said that the that Elizabeth Hall attended Shacklewell School. And of course, Hannah Downs had, you know, she produced two samplers which named Shacklewell as the school that she That's attended. right, yeah. I mean, this really was the collection that kept on giving. And right from the very beginning, I made a promise to the family that I wouldn't um, disperse the collection until it was published mm. um, so that people could see see everything together in one place. Yeah, because I think people who don't know that much about early modern English needlework don't really realize how incredibly rare it is to have basically a girl's entire needlework suite that survives and the fact that it was added to by further generations. People are not familiar with how rare this sort of thing is. People think a lot about Martha Edlin as this example of somebody who has all of her childhood needlework together that survived and was passed down through the female members of her family. But this is even more extreme like there's it's not only uh, Elizabeth Hall it's also her descendants adding all of their needlework to this box this it's a time capsule of women stitching Quaker women stitching 
London yeah. women's stitching. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, as the family progresses through the generations, you you get a real feeling for the sense of um, the rise and fall in their mm. social and economic position. And actually, the family have been amazingly generous with with sharing with me other objects that came from from the family home. Mm. Um, and it's quite interesting to be able to put the needlework into the context of who of other objects of pieces of furniture mm-hmm. of clocks of portraits i mean there's a portrait of simeon warner yeah it's been a it's been an absolute treat and it has you know it's taught me a, a lot mm-hmm. about about preconceived ideas i ha- i had about how quaker girls grew up i mean you look at the the objects in elizabeth Paul suite and they are so fancy and so frivolous mm-hmm. in parts mm. that you it just breaks all the preconceived ideas that you have about Quaker girls being very plain and not spending their time you know not not having access to these sort of very very luxurious materials mm-hmm. and, and finished products yeah I mean I think it's that crazy difference between the object and the word the archive tells a very different story than this suite does i mean when george fox founds shackowell he says you know for girls to be taught whatever is civil and useful in creation he doesn't explain what civil and useful is based on like what has been written about quakerism for so long one would assume that those things would be plain and simple but this stuff is excessive there's hugely bright things and there's gold and there's silver and there's sequins and it's just it's this excess but I like so much that the family has been so generous with you because it also puts these objects in their larger context it allows you to envision what did this home look like what what kind of world were these people living in materially I just think that's so cool well they were living in they were certainly living in a style which was beyond the reach of most people yeah um and further generations seem to have been proud of that the fact that jacob bell the grandson was like hey look at this thing that my grandma made absolutely i mean i think probably it's true to say that in this day and age you wouldn't have many grandsons actually bothering to write down how Mm. proud they were of, of their mother's of the things that their mother their grandmother had worked that's right and it also suggests that You know, when I first started looking at Quaker stuff, even before we ever met, I was thinking, oh, maybe these things that I'm seeing, because I was looking at those wax and shellwork shadow boxes at that point, Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, oh, like, maybe it's just one family, like, going crazy, and everybody else was just normal, quote-unquote normal, this thing that I had understood Quakerism to be, which was plain, um, and maybe it was just this one family that was kind of going crazy. But the fact that the, the later generations of Elizabeth Hall's family were clearly so proud of all of this stuff just makes it even more clear that they weren't embarrassed by this. They weren't ashamed of the excess. They were proud of it. It was something they were comfortable with, that they could mesh their identities as Quakers and their identities as um, wealthy London mercantile folk together. And they, those things were not at odds in the way that I think... Um, the way that at least I was taught about Quakers and suggested that those things were at odds, that Quakers were apart from the world, kind of Puritan in their beliefs. It's much more nuanced than that. Yeah, it's much more nuanced. And actually, family members from whom I have no needlework, but Mm. that were within the family, when you look at their lives, then you see, you know, Elizabeth's sister Ruth was married to a very successful, um, very high-end silversmith, Mm. you know, I had a sampler in the exhibition last year that was worked by a member of the Stevens family um, who married Daniel Quare, a Quaker clockmaker, but making, mm. you know, very expensive clocks for the royal household. Yeah, I think that this group of Quakers, they were fully immersed in a world of wealth, of material wealth and trade and uh, helping each other with those Quaker mercantile networks. Yeah. And I think that, 
you know, there's there's lots of evidence um, that 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 I have found by looking at the needlework just to indicate actually there was a there had to be a belief in using the best materials and and somehow they could they felt that that was that was acceptable mm. because it gave work to other people it it perhaps they felt it honored god in right. the, in the in a way that using lesser materials or lesser skills just didn't right it's like you were using the the hand skills that god gave you the wealth that he gave you it, it i can imagine it would all kind of come back to godliness despite the fact that to our 21st century eyes these seemed far from their kind of religious teachings yeah i think it all made sense but there was clearly they clearly felt that they could justify the production and Mm. and teaching girls how to make these things and that that they weren't well at least in elizabeth hall's case they weren't being made to sell they were being made for her own pleasure because she kept them and she handed them down to her daughter, mm-hmm. you know, and they were then subsequently handed down through the generations. Yeah, I think it, this stuff is so important on its own, but it also, it adds so much, I think, important and necessary context to other parts of material culture studies or just like history. You know, she, Elizabeth Hall's suite adds so much knowledge about the Hannah Down suite in the VNA. How do those, these two girls knew each other. They were friends. They went to each other's weddings and births. You know, they were in each other's world and then also this adds so much necessary context for peter collinson who's elizabeth hall's son we always think of him as you know one of the most important botanists of the 18th century and he was but what does it mean to now know the education and the kind of material richness of his mother of his family of his descendants well i i think probably without that Without that material culture, mm. he wouldn't have been the person that he was. I mean, he we know that he was brought up by his maternal grandmother mm-hmm. and spent a lot of time with her. She she was living in Peckham with her grandchildren and her garden was open to the public and it it attracted visitors from not just all over London, but in fact from other parts of Europe. Mm. Um and because Peter Collinson is well known in the public domain, um, we have descriptions of her garden. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't just what was happening within the household or or the things that she was surrounded by, in terms of of the ha- of the household, mm. but also the garden. Yeah, you know, she was she was searching out new plants, new new flowers. It was clearly something of of importance to her that she had you know the latest fashion in in flowers and plants in her garden yeah um you know the the most fashionable way of of keeping the garden you know planting where she planted hedges trees etc you know she was they were very much they were people of of the wider world so Elizabeth Hall, we know she goes to Shackowell School, which is part of the parish of Hackney, just to the northeast of the city of London in the 17th century, right? So Shackowell is part of a much larger world of 17th century girls' education because Hackney was the center of education for girls of the middling sort and upper classes in the 17th century. So after that long explanation, my question for you is, how does Elizabeth Hall's suite fit into this world of being a hackney schoolgirl in the 17th century? Um, I think I think the best way of answering that is to say that Shacklewell, we, we understand, was a school that was founded by George Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, teach girls all things useful. I suspect, though, you know, I wasn't there, would have been regarded as being one of the stricter, Mm. um, more Puritan schools, Mm. Puritan in thinking. Um, But the the needlework that is produced at Shacklewell has huge resonance with pieces which are extant in the Mathred suite. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the, the idea of having a, a bellows purse, which you see in the Elizabeth Hall Suite, you also see in the Martha Edlin, you see the same work that is on her trinket box, her coloured trinket box. Mm. Um, and so that would lead me, at least, to believe that probably there is an element of peripatetic teaching, mm. teaching where a single or multiple, probably, teachers are teaching these subjects within that close proximity because these schools are all very close together. You know, they're, they're literally 10, 15 minutes walk from each other. Right. Um, and the fact that the girls are producing so many similar objects in in their caskets um, and working these, these objects at, at school at the same time leads me to believe that actually there was a there was much more integration between the schools certainly we we know that martha edlin's uh well we we don't know where martha edlin was being taught we suspect that she's likely to have been taught at elizabeth salmon school right um but you know they were they were sharing a lot of common space together so they were sharing space both in the in the church despite the fact that many of the schools were dissenting yep um, they had pews in in the parish church they would certainly have been mixing somewhat socially and i think that the fact that the that so many of the objects share so many similarities leads us to believe that 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 Shacklewell as a school these girls were not they were they were part of their wider community they weren't working without knowing what was going on at other schools yeah I like that idea so much of needlework as being the way we understand how Shacklewell fits into this landscape because like these girls were Quaker and very likely not going to the parish church with these other girls, right? They were probably, they were going to their own meetings, presumably. Um, so they weren't seeing other schoolgirls on Sundays in the church pews, but through the needlework, we understand that there was this larger overlap going on between girls at these various Hackney schools. Like, we can assume that they were passing each other on the streets, you know, in through the fields, Right? There was not a lot of street going on probably in the 17th century in Hackney. But they were they were sharing the same physical spaces, but they were also clearly sharing the same sort of uh, needlework spaces because they were working some of the same objects over the course of decades. I mean, Martha Edlin is making her stuff in the early 1670s. Elizabeth Hall is making her stuff 10 years later. I mean, you know, even 15, later, 15 years later because Martha Edlin is working also in the late 1660s. But I like very much this idea of this, I don't know, this through line, this thread, huh? Um, through Hackney schoolgirl needlework. Whilst we can't put ourselves back in that time, unfortunately, what we can know through the needlework is that they are all very much aware of what, what other girls are doing at work in, um, if you like, the prevailing fashions within the needlework teaching of that period. Yeah, I think that, well, the Elizabeth Hall suite is so exciting, not only because it's a hugely important survival that helps us kind of reassess our understanding of Quakerism in the period, um, but also because between her suite and Hannah Downs's suite, it gives some really important context to Martha Edlin. And I mean, I love Martha Edlin. Her suite has been very very well loved for almost a century now but I think that people tend to view her in a vacuum they tend to think that oh Martha Edlin is the most important because all of her childhood needlework survives which is which is true and that's great but she's not the only one whose needlework has survived and we can assume with good reason that Martha Edlin goes to school in Hackney and now we need to bring into conversation with Martha Edlin, Hannah Downs, and Elizabeth Hall, who are also going to school in Hackney, who are making similar objects, who are 
also nonconformists who are of a similar socioeconomic standing. I think it's really important and overdue to um, assess the girls together, you know, assess them alone and appreciate them alone and evaluate their needlework for what it is by itself, but also have conversations about the overlap between not only these surviving suites, but all of the other needlework that would have been made in that place and time. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, it's probably quite important to point out, there is one very strong difference between mm. the two suites of, that we know were made at Shacklewell yeah. and, and Martha Edlin's and other suites which, which exist. And that is the lack of figure, figures. Right, so this is something that I feel like I feel like we had conversations about this really early on. I noticed it pretty early on in my thesis, but it's something that lurks so strangely that I feel like when we first talked about it, you were like, no. And then all of a sudden you were like, yeah, you're right, because you don't notice it until you start noticing it. And then all of a sudden it's so weirdly apparent. I feel like it's hard to find absence, but in this situation, once you start looking for it, it's everywhere. You're right. The Quaker girls... Their needlework is similar in structure, in material, oftentimes in composition, but the figures are not there with the exception of one small group. And they are making needlework in a time when other schoolgirls are, you know, stitching depictions of biblical stories and classical narratives and female personifications of the senses and the continents and the virtues and all of that stuff. So this absence is really conspicuous. And we've talked a lot one-on-one about what that absence could be. Um, and I think it probably has to do with interpreting a Bible verse in a specific way. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. I mean, I, I found it very interesting looking at when we, when we spent time looking at um, the iconography on samplers mm. that, that so many of the bands, share so much in common with bands that we know are worked by non-Quakers. Right. But there are certain bands which appear repeatedly, almost almost in all Quaker 17th century samplers. Yeah. Um, and that is the inclusion of things like the strawberries and... Yeah, the grapes, the Celtic knot and stylized carnation, right. Yeah. Um... And there are certain bands which, which certainly appear in in, in samples that we know to be non-Quaker, but that appear just so often in Quaker samplers, um, and not just in the samples, but also in the needlework. I mean, it's really apparent in in Elizabeth the Elizabeth Hall suite. You know, on her on her purse, on her sweet bag, that the inclusion of strawberries. Mm. And I think it wasn't until I I started to look at, at that that I, you know, they're not just in, it's not just used as a decorative um, motif. It also plays to this idea that at this point in time, strawberries in England would have, they would all have been wild strawberries. And this idea that wild strawberries could grow anywhere they could grow amongst the weeds they could be you know this this very sweet delicious fruit Mm. emerged from from under a hedgerow surrounded by weeds it was it plays to that idea of of quakers somehow being picked out being chosen being above what they are surrounded by. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. That's good. Okay, now that you have mentioned a specific Elizabeth Hall object, I have to ask you, of all of the objects in the Elizabeth Hall suite of needlework, what is your absolute favorite? Oh, and I think, I, I think, I've said this before, I think it would be almost impossible to choose one, so I'm going to choose two. So... My two objects would be one of the embroidered nutmegs. Yeah. 
and the second object would be the garters that Elizabeth Hall made for her mother. Great combo and clearly the same combo as mine. I think that those two objects are so special, not only because they're beautiful and so rare, but actually they're a quite nice duo when you consider how they combine these themes that appear throughout this suite and throughout Quaker needlework more generally. It's this theme, one, that comes with the nutmeg, which is conspicuous consumption, like this, this wealth that's on display in such an obvious and kind of excessive and useless way that this wealth display that's really at odds with what Quakerism is trying to promote in in their writing, right? They're, they keep saying, you know, it's at a certain point, it becomes about plainness in the 1680s. But up until then, and even all the way through, they're really talking about how uh, you, you're just trying to have usefulness. You're not trying to have excess. And these that is an excessive object. But the other theme that comes up a lot so often and I think is so beautifully personified by the garters is the sense of community that Elizabeth is making this for her mother that she I don't know whether or not she's actively thinking about this idea of looking beyond the classroom towards this larger world of Quaker material culture I don't I don't think that was necessarily her intention but I think that it accidentally kind of really speaks to this idea of Quakers connecting with each other through stuff, through needlework specifically, and more than Quakers generally, it's about Quaker women. It's about mothers and daughters and teachers and students and classmates and this world of women teaching women. That's a conclusion I reached a lot in my thesis, that a lot of why the needlework looks the way it does is because it was a network of women teaching themselves. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, when you read the words on the garters, mm. you know, dearest mother, I this do send as my love, which will never, which never shall end. Oh. While I do live, I ever will be thy dutiful daughter, Elizabeth Hall. Ah, so cute. Oh. It's, it's, you know, it is about a mother's, uh, a daughter's love for her mother. Mm. Um, and it's about wanting to, expressing that love through a given object, through a given object which she has worked. Yeah. So it's not just about the object itself, but it's about the love and the time and the skill that goes into that. And, you know, objects like this are, are, are with these personal sentiments. You know, these are objects of love, but they're quite restrained objects of love. Um... You know they're restrained in their in their choice of colours, in their palette, in the in the wording. But yet they they carry that. But they're also very intimate objects. They didn't shy away. I mean, you know, there's there's lots written about garters and and the whole, you know, where they fit in the in the marriage um, ceremony and. You know, this idea of garters being such intimate objects. And I think the very the very fact that, that, you know, such an intimate object is given from a daughter to a mother says a lot about about the whole idea of Quaker of, of Quaker family, of Quaker you know, of of loving your family, of wanting to be close to them. And and actually, we know, we know that Elizabeth Hall had a very, very close relationship with her mother, mm. including after she remarries. Yeah. Uh, you know, she, she eventually, she moves to her mother's house after her stepfather passes away. She moves in with her mother and she lives with her mother. Mm. Um, she sends her children to live with her mother right you know the these this this family it's a it the, the closeness is was is between the females yeah much more quite clearly much more than it is between the men elizabeth does seem to have been able to i mean she sent she has she has uh six children in total but three of whom survive childhood mm-hmm um, and 
her two eldest sons and a daughter, Margaret. And they they are sent to live with with her mother Martha in Peckham. Yeah. And it, and that changes the that changes the whole history of the family. Right, and the legacy, of course, because Peter Collinson. It's an incredibly poignant and lovely object, but also it's an extremely good choice for this podcast because whenever I interview people, a lot of times, you know, I always ask people their origin story. How did you come to whatever you're studying or you're doing, if you're a stitcher, whatever. And almost always the story is, I was taught by my mother or I was taught by my grandmother. But I like that this reverses that it's you know like obviously there's an exchange from mother to daughter here but I like that in this situation this is the daughter giving back to the mother it feels like kind of this beautiful reversal and gift back from the person who obtains the skills to the person who gives the skills even though she's in school rather than working you know she's not stitching in the home in this situation but this idea of the daughter giving back to the mother, I think is actually a really beautiful 180 from what we usually hear on the podcast. So thank you for bringing it up. Well, I think also one of the things that you, I mean, it's, it's a great shame that, that we don't have any surviving needlework for that Martha Hall works. Mm-hmm. Cause that would, that would give us a, um, an opportunity to see, whether or not she had that same needleworking education, that same... Right, bright, colourful, vibrant, expensive. But the very fact that there is no surviving needlework within that suite, that she she didn't pass on, or certainly that, that survives, didn't pass on to her daughter, kind of indicates that Perhaps she didn't have that same needleworking education. Mm-hmm. It wasn't part of her education. If indeed she attended school, we, we simply don't know. She was definitely a very enlightened person because she, and a very passionate person because she's put so much effort into her own garden, you know, that people came to visit it. It was a famous garden. She, she, she certainly took um her grandchildren to visit other gardens i mean she was clearly a very passionate gardener she was very interested in in botany and and hort- and early horticulture um and there are some there are descriptions of her garden um so she was a very she clearly had a lot of artistic what's the word sentiments that she that she expressed through her gardening so now i have one final question for you maybe the hardest question of all what is your favorite embroidered object ever that is such a hard question to answer but i have to say i think that when i look back because we've had you know i've been so fortunate over the years um to see many wonderful pieces but I think possibly my all-time favorite object was something which I actually handled relatively recently and it was um a 17 uh, sorry a 1650s period raised work picture with roundels of the senses Mm -hmm. and amongst the wrangles are are you know there's 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 a wrangle which depicts um a girl with her looking glass there's a wrangle which depicts a girl eating fruit you know taste smell touch sight all these things but when it comes to to sight there is a mouse that she is that the that the female in the roundel is just so horrified by and it actually it was a piece which was in um a 
originally, um, or at one point, I should say, was owned by um, Judge Untermeyer. Oh, yeah. Um, and that is one of my, that, I think that is my ultimate all-time most favorite piece that I've ever handled. Wow, an unexpected answer, but I love it. And it reminds me of in the Susanna Perwich casket, cabinet, casket, cabinet at LACMA. She has depictions of the senses as well. And it always makes me laugh because the sense of touch is having her finger bitten by a parrot and her eyes are so big. Like you can tell she's <laughs> really having a bad time. She's really alarmed. And I like those little, the moments of personality you get, even though these objects were created almost 400 years ago. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and there are, and there, you know, there are so many of these objects which are, which you know are taken from, from print sources and are fairly, I don't mean standard because they're not standard, the right. individual, individuality screams at you. But they, the images are standard, mm. and then every so often you get, you get a piece which, which just, I don't know, it just captures your heart. You know, you you look at it and you just think that mouse under that chair was that wasn't in a print. That wasn't. She didn't copy that. She. That's a little bit of the girl's personality of playfulness. Mm. Um, and I think they're the, they're the, they're the things which capture my heart. But other than that, I have to say I think the Elizabeth Hall garters. And I think we've talked before about you know if we had a superpower, what would that be? And I know we would both share the same answer that it would be about traveling back in time, just being able to spend a day. Yep. In their lives. Yep. I said I that they might actually be very upset by all the questioning they would get from us. But that would be my ultimate... Yeah, that would be... The ultimate, oh. um, superpower. That would be the dream. We're not out here trying to change history. We're not out here trying to wreck history and the way it kind of runs. We just want to sit and lurk for one day, lightly shake these girls by the shoulders and be like, tell us more. And also, we love your work and thank you for doing it. Yeah, I mean it's well, it's been it's been the um, the pattern of my life. I mean it's 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 what I spend my evenings looking at. I I read around the subject as much as I can. Mm. But ultimately, the needlework gives you you can read everything you want. You can read. You can you can search through records. You can. You can read as many books, you can read as many accounts, but the needlework has that, it has their hands on it. Yeah. That, that they touched, that they, that they worked, that they, it's a, it's an absolute physical as well as, as, as emotional connection to their lives. And that's, and that's really the, the joy of looking at needlework. Absolutely. That is, I mean, I could not agree more. And that is an amazing note to end on. So for now, I will say, Becky, thank you so much. This has been a really long time coming. I have loved this conversation with you like I have loved every conversation with you. Thank you for sharing with the world or with So What listeners about this very, very rich world in which you live. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, it's me again. Thank you so much to Becky Scott for not only this really enjoyable interview, but for all of the wonderful conversations and experiences she has given me over the last approximately four years. I feel extremely lucky to have seen so many unbelievable pieces of English embroidery, and it's all thanks to her. I really hope you'll be able to come to our exhibition, Choice and Precious Works, Treasures from the Schoolroom, 1650-1750, which is open until the 18th of November 2023. If not, though, our exhibition catalog, which is very beautiful, if I might say, is available for £35 plus shipping. You can contact me and I will hook you up. 
So how do I conclude an episode about a subject so close to my heart, something I've been deeply immersed in for five years? I feel like I've been living and breathing early Quaker needlework for a long time now, so it's really exciting to see Elizabeth Hall Sweet out in the world and to talk to Becky about it. And Becky has been living and breathing the Elizabeth Hall Sweet for like a decade now, so it's a long time coming. Elizabeth Hall Sweet is such a big deal. I know I'm biased, obviously, but really it is a super big deal. Her suite is important not only because it's really rare for all of a girl's childhood embroidery to survive, but even more rare to have multiple generations of a girl's childhood embroidery survive. It's important because Elizabeth Hall was the mother of a really influential botanist. It's important because it shows that Hannah Downs was not stitching in a vacuum, that Elizabeth Hall was right there next to her. And it's important because it adds to our understanding of early Quaker needlework, this thing which stands in stark contrast to the Quaker tenet of plainness, so present in writings from the period and the centuries beyond it. These objects are so important, they are game-changing, they tell us so much. So I think the best way to summarize this episode is to celebrate and appreciate the embroidery that makes us really reassess and rewrite our previously held beliefs. That makes us question what we think we know. Elizabeth Hall's needlework does not look how we would expect early Quaker needlework to look. And that's okay. That's good even. Because it shows us that through stitch, we can always learn something new. Embroidery has a lot to tell us, and we just have to look and listen. Okay, that's all I've got for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for sticking around. I'll be back in your ears soon, I think and hope. Now go out and stitch some stories and get to Oxfordshire ASAP. Bye! Bye!